Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Digital Journey podcast. I have my co-host, Brandon Schaefer, with me, as always, and we are very excited to get into another episode. Hey, Brandon, how's everything going? Oh, dude, it's it's, go, it's going great, Brian. It's, it's good to catch up again. I know these every other Wednesday uh, sessions that we're doing are uh, a lot of fun. Uh, we've talked to a bunch of different people so far. Tonight's you know, near and dear to my heart because I know Laura personally, and I know that everyone that's uh, watching this live or that's going to watch this in a recorded session at, at a later time is really going to get some value and learn a lot about not only education, but just about running a successful business and, and going all in and, and really caring. So I'm excited to uh, I'm excited to listen and learn myself. Definitely. No, I think we have, you know, one of the most seasoned people we've had on so far and, you know, a very trending topic right now with a lot that's changed, you know, in the educational space and our workspace, things going remote, going more digital. And of course, always looking to improve the way that we do things. So just before we dive into the episode, as you said, Brandon, I think we're up to, you know, counting the web series. We just tapped uh, episode six. Um, so each week we've got a lot of updates coming with the podcast. Uh, we are now available on YouTube, Anchor, Spotify, and as of today, Apple Podcasts. So be sure to check us out on whichever channel you prefer. Subscribe, give us a like, uh, just help us get the message out there and share more digital experiences and journeys of the members that have been on our podcast. So without further ado, Brandon, we'll jump into today's episode. Today's episode is going to be focused on the power of creative learning, where education is going, how it's changed, and what the future may have in store for all of us. So without any further ado, I'd like to bring on our special guest for today, Laura Hart, who is the CEO and founder of RoboFund. Hey, Laura, how are you doing today? It's so great to have you on. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. I'm doing really well. Awesome. Perfect. So before we, you know, we'll definitely be diving deeper into the journey of the company. Um, but before we do that, maybe you can just give, you know, people a one or two minute overview of, you know, what is RoboFund? Sure. Um, and what are sure. you guys in the educational space so robofun is a company that helps kids love to learn and our parent company name is vision education and media and we do the same thing but we do that in schools throughout the new york city area and robofun allows us to do it in our center on 102nd and broadway where kids come for classes camp vacation days private lessons uh, birthday parties, and they make robots. They learn how to code. They uh, learn about stop motion animation, and they go deeper into Minecraft in creative ways that are really interesting learning experiences for them. So that's what we do. That's amazing. It's definitely something I wish was around when I was in school. <laughs> I would have been all over the robot. Me too. Side. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's amazing. And Laura, I know, obviously, before we dive deep into the company itself, right, a lot of your background and, and experiences is what led to the creation of this company. And, you know, you have a great journey and a very interesting story. So not to go all the way back to the beginning, but can you sure. kind of give us, you know, a nice overview of, you know, how did your experiences early on lead to, you know, what eventually became RoboFund? Sure. Um my parents were entrepreneurs, and I think that's a really important part of this whole journey. Um, and I was very aware of it growing up. I assisted them. Uh, at one point, they ran tours for senior citizens on Cape Cod. 
And in the nighttime, they would be exhausted from touring these senior citizens. And at 16, 17 years old, I'd take these bus loads of senior citizens to restaurants and help them open up lobsters and eat their lobsters. And to me, that was like just part of being part of my family. And I didn't realize how much I was learning about entre entrepreneurship. My passion has always been painting and sculpture. Uh, to your, uh, to my right, which I think is your left, is a Carl Schrag, beautiful painting, um, and a little bit of on the other side is a little bit of my own painting. Uh, so I studied painting and sculpture in college, and I had um, an internship one summer at a museum in Washington D.C. called the Capitol Children's Museum. And when I was there, I heard this lecture by Seymour Papert, who. Uh, at the time had started the artificial intelligence lab at MIT with Marvin Minsky. And I was um, going into my junior year studying painting at, and sculpture at Skidmore College. And I learned about this language he was creating called logo. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, I think it might be really hard to make a living as a painter, but I love children. <laughs> I love thinking about learning and how do we learn? How do we not learn? Um, maybe I could like learn this language and teach kids. And, uh, you know, sometimes in life we have really good ideas. This one worked out very well for me. So I went from a um, bachelor's degree in studio art to running the computer program on the Upper East Side of Manhattan for a private school called the Buckley School. And in that position, I was given complete freedom to do whatever I wanted. And it was really like my learning to teach playground Although all through childhood I taught. I was a babysitter, I was a camp counselor, I was always doing things with kids. Uh, I worked in a classroom. So um, my 14 years at Buckley allowed me really to hone my skills as a teacher to really think about what do kids need and how is this, this technology tool gonna work? Um, and in the middle of all that, I had the amazing experience of running into Seymour Papert again and we became lifelong friends at that point and a, a mentor as well. Uh, so what I discovered my specialty coming from a creative arts background was developing creative ideas that use technology. Uh, so curriculum creation was always the fun part for me, but what I discovered amongst other computer teachers and amongst lots of people was that was the hard part for them. So I continued to uh, grow curriculum over those 14 years, connect with other computer teachers, uh, continue to work with Seymour Papert. Um, and he suggested at one point that I consider getting a, a graduate degree at Harvard in education. And I thought, well, that's an interesting idea. I don't think I want to stay in schools the rest of my life. I don't quite know how I'm going to use this. But I figured, you know, getting a graduate degree at Harvard would give me a lot. And it did. And so um, I went and got a master's in education at Harvard uh, in, two, in uh, 1996. And then soon after that, I had a little stint at the Little Red Schoolhouse, where I was also their computer director of their computer program. And then I started my company. And for the last 23 years, I've had this wild ride of learning how to be an entrepreneur. Um, I already knew what I wanted the kids to do. but naively, I didn't realize that the real challenge of running a business, once you know what you're doing in the business, is how do you make that successful? Um, how do you make it so you make payroll every two weeks? Uh, how do you think three, six, a year, two, three years ahead? Um, and those years of uh, 
being kind of my parents' uh, assistant on their entrepreneur entrepreneurial journeys really helped me. So that's very interesting. No, it's it's an amazing story, and I think obviously there's a lot in there. So people might not understand the scale at which you know how fast and how long some of those things took. But I thought you made a really interesting point because you know as a creative myself, it's very easy for us to be very excited around a lot of different areas, right, and different ways to uh, deliver that creativity, if you will. So I was curious. I know you said you found that your passion was you know kind of connecting the arts, creativity, hands-on sculpting, and seeing yep. that vision, and obviously yep. combining that with technology to further education. So I'm just curious in that initial journey, of course, meeting your mentor, right, speaking with some you know very intelligent folks, part of the MIT program as well. Is there a moment that you remember specifically where you realized? like this is my aha moment was it you know coding for the first time in lego or building your first course where you really saw everything come together in front of you and, and kind of what the future had in store um i don't think there was an aha moment i think uh, quite frankly i share a quality that many entrepreneurs have which is they don't realize that what they're setting out to chew or to eat is really very big to me, you know, I did it with my kids at Buckley. I did it with the kids at Little Red. So why can't I open a center to do this? This is like, uh, you know, what's the big deal? Um, I think one aha moment where it really all came together and um, we can share this video. I don't think we can share it on here unless Brandon can be very magical, uh, is when I had the kids uh, in summer camp. Now, one of the things about running a company is that you need to empower other people and you need to give away a lot of control. So I had some pretty, I, I, all along to this day, I have incredible staff. And one summer, literally about seven, eight years ago, kids decided to create a Rube Goldberg contraption in their week of summer camp. And um, it started with the sort of the path of a robot going through an obstacle course in which it did various crazy things ending by popping a balloon. And it was that moment when it really all came together. And um, I'm always good at the practice. I'm not as good at the marketing, which is why I'm very happy to be working with Brandon. Uh, but one of the kids in the class brother had an iPad and he, uh, he filmed the whole thing. I don't know if you can pull that up, Brandon, if that's an impossible thing within our talking. <laughs> I think Brian's the expert here, man. I, I, I don't know if you, uh, you have it, but I'm sure. All right. you, can do it. I, you know what? I'll share it later. Yeah, but it yeah. was just this moment where the, you know, like, I really believe that one of the things that's missing in education is thinking about things in a cross curricular way. It's not just science here and math here and art here, which, you know, there is the acronym STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art and math. And that project really brought it all together where the kids were like, okay, this is crazy. Rube Goldberg, for those of you who don't know what it is, is the idea of a sculpture that's very ridiculous and whimsical. Like what is the longest path, not the shortest path between here and my kitchen? Um, and how can, you know, or how could I create a robot to do that? Uh, so sort of like that game, um, I'm forgetting the mousetrap. Uh, so that's what the kids did. And so that was a uh, really great aha moment. Very good. No, that, that's awesome. And I think obviously we've talked about your journey a little bit as well. And 
from what I remember, there's a lot of, you know, big milestones, um, you know, from your father running for mayor up in Albany and yes. to you homeschooling your own son. So yes. I just want to touch on those a little bit because I think sure. they are a big part of your journey. Sure. And right. if you don't mind, we can kind of just touch yeah, on yeah, those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I was uh, seven years, six or seven years old, my parent, my father, um, Albert Hartheimer, ran for mayor of the city of Albany. And that was a real tilting at windmills thing. The mayor had been there for 30 years, Erastus, Erastus Corning, and there was no way he was going to win. Um, well, in retrospect, uh, perhaps he didn't think that. Um, so just watching that whole thing and maybe watching somebody tilt or participating at tilting at windmills is a little bit like running a little company, especially through a pandemic when you can't have kids in person for a good part of it. So I think I learned to think big um, and to think that, you know, you follow your dreams. My dad's dream was let's make the inner city of Albany a better place. Let's end a lot of poverty. And, and my dream is let's do better things in education. Our kids deserve better than what many of them are getting now. So I think that that helped me dream big. And then I can't remember. Oh, homeschooling my son. OK, so um, I went to public school in upstate New York. I graduated in three years. The reason I bring this up is because everyone's like, wow, you must be really smart. I think I had like an 88, 89 average. I was really smart at figuring out the systems to get out of stuff I didn't. So I didn't like high school that much. And so it's like, oh, I just have to double up on an English and a history and I can get out in three years. Wow. So I did that. But my mom was like, I don't think you're ready for college. And she sent me to the Emma Willard School. And I had one year, which was supposed to be a whole year, but I got pneumonia and mono and it was half a year. It was the best education. I went from there to Skidmore, from there to Harvard, you know, 10 years after Skidmore. Emma Willard was by far the best because teachers knew me and cared about me. And I slid through public school. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't great. I wasn't excited by very much. And I remember I got my first C at Emma Willard and I was like, oh my God, I think I'm kind of a smart, how did this happen? And it was like somebody cared enough to go through my papers and teach me what I what, how I could do better. Um, and I think that a lot of the model of what I do in my company is based on how do we create those situations for kids where it's not just, you know, like I felt like, and I don't feel good about this, but public education is for me was how do I slide by? And I think I see that in a lot of situations. And so I wanted to change the paradigm to how do we create a place where kids don't want to slide by, but want to go a lot farther. Definitely. And it seems, you know, I know you bring up like your parents' entrepreneurial, you know, uh, experiences and mindset. And it is, you know, very interesting and exciting how much we learn when we're young, like very passive, just from human behavior, like where we really can't absorb the context of what's going on. But you, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. see the, the subcontext, if yes. you will. So yes. it yes. seems like, you know, what your parents really gave you, and I think my parents, you know, my partner's parents, a lot of entrepreneurial mindseted people, that their parents had something like that where, it's not always just working hard, right? But it's just the way that they perceive the world. And my parents like to call it, you know, we call it pulling the yarn. Like if you're just excited, just take the first step and just keep pulling the yarn. And out of nowhere, you might find yourself somewhere you never thought you'd be. I mean, yes. I think 
Brandon can say that's pretty much what we did with this podcast. We just wanted to create a great experience to share other people's stories, uh-huh. not go deep into technology. So we said, let's just start with three shows, you know, got great feedback, love the guests, like everybody like yourself, that's willing to come on and share their stories to educate more people. And the ball just gets rolling. So it's very exciting. And I think, like you said, I I think a lot of kids, you know, for me personally, I think I was kind of similar to you where I always did on my side, I always did like well in school uh, outside of like uh, alternative languages or anything like that, where you can't really hack it around the corner. Um, Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) But I was, I was a good test taker. So if you knew how to take a multiple choice test, you know, you don't always have to know all the information that's on it, it's just how they're phrasing the questions. And right. then you get more relaxed on the subjects you don't really care about because you think you can just get by. And, and I think that's happening for a lot of people, right. especially those that are fortunate enough to find their passions early on. And then they're like, why am I still in a history class where I'd love just to be coding or, you know, developing robotics or just right. doing something with their hands, right? Not everything is in technology. Um, so before we kind of go into the next part, Brandon, I'm just curious, what kind of school kid were you growing up? I was <laughs> Did you like school? Good, Did you not like it? Yeah, no, I was good. I was a half decent student. I won't say I was a, a, excelled uh, in, in school. I played a lot of sports and, and, you know, like Laura, you know, my family, um, or all entrepreneurs, you know, my, um, my grandfather had a, uh, a huge vending company. Um, when vending machines were popular and, uh, my mom was an entrepreneur still is today. Uh, and I was always the gopher for her. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago and it's funny how, how, uh, Laura had mentioned, you know, it's almost her story is the same as mine. And, uh, just in terms of work ethic, not, not only in terms of just, just how she grew up and stuff like that, but in terms of work ethic, and it's the same as yours too, Brian, like, you know, growing up as a kid, like I was always had to fill in for a, a business, right? So there was multiple stores and stuff like that. So if someone didn't show up, you know, I would get a call at six o'clock in the morning, like, hey, you had to go. Meanwhile, my friends are, you know, sleeping until lunch and everything else like that. I was just out the door. I actually never thought twice about it. I thought that's what everybody did. When I got a little older and I looked back, I realized that nobody else was doing that, man. I was the only one waking up seven days a week doing it. And that and that work ethic still drives through today. And I know it does for Laura and I know it does for you too, Brian. Um, so all three of us on here are kind of like in the identical atmosphere or whatever you want to call it um, in terms of effort and care too. I know Brian, I mean, we started talking two or three years ago, just, just quick, quick, brief conversations about some, di- some, uh, some different business stuff. And, um, you know, I think all three of us on here, I, I don't think, I know all three of us on here really care about what we do. And I know in Laura's case, she cares about every single student that comes through. I've personally seen, seen her interact and you can have all the education in the world, but if you don't have care, love and, uh, generosity in your heart, I, I don't know that you're really going to reach the fulfillment level and success level that a human being, a human being is capable of. So that's all Definitely. I have. No, I couldn't have said it better right. myself. <laughs> and I, I think it's true. Go, Go ahead, Laura. So I had a couple of points. One, um, I want to have a shout out to somebody who hasn't worked for me for quite a while. Um, he's involved in restaurants in uh, West Hartford now. His name is John Tasporis. And when I interviewed him, uh, I, I have learned that people who have had entrepreneurial experiences 
work well in my company. I think they work well in small companies because they get it. And his parents ran a deli of some type. And then he became, uh, it was him and his mom who ran it, or his mom ran it. And in his interview, he said to me, well, uh, I worked every Sunday because I realized at some point that if I didn't work on Sunday, my mom would never have a day off. Mm. And that's the kind of person that in, in a small company that you need, somebody who can like look at the whole situation. And Correct. I was really uh, impressed by how he figured that out at 16 years old. So Yeah. No, I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, kind of have, and whether they come from sports backgrounds or parents, like there's a lot of molds. So I don't want to say, you know, how we right. were molded is the same, but I think a lot of entrepreneurs at some point, they kind of shift from the hustle of like knowing you're working hard, knowing you're doing a lot, quote unquote, and then they can kind of, you know, become much more empathetic, see the bigger picture and see where they can actually have an impact outside of, you know, just helping here and there. So sure. I think that's, you know, really a great segue into, you know, kind of the philosophies of learning and, you know, what has kind of made us the people we are in today, probably, obviously I've gone through different educational systems and different programs right. as well uh, compared right. to you and Brandon. So I know uh, Laura RoboFund specifically um, is built more on the philosophy of constructivism, correct? Right. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. So I figured we can kind of start there uh, as a good sure. basis and then we can kind of go into, you know, what are the other philosophies out sure. there? Because I'm sure a lot of people are aware of being a part of one of the philosophies, but maybe not what right. the names are you know, right. specifically. So I'm going to have a caveat before I start in that there are a ton. I, I am not an education professor. I am definitely in the practitioner category. And so I'm doing my best to be as academically correct. Um, but a lot of these terms are thrown around in a lot of different ways. So uh, what we do is called constructivism or even constructionism. Uh, constructivism is the idea that you don't, that teaching is not like the kind of vessel of information from a teacher into a child. It's more that we learn by what's around us. And not only do we learn by what's around us, that we actively construct or make knowledge out of what we're doing and what our experiences are. And constructivism takes that a little deeper to talk about um, you acquire more knowledge when you have really rich tools to work with and rich tools of both people resources, but also the tools you use to construct. So one way I think of constructivism as it applies to my company is when you make something that you really, really care about, you really learn. And so what I am trying to do is create situations where kids care deeply about what they're doing. And through that caring, they really learn deeply. Um, and to a large degree, I see the tools that I use as somewhat as Trojan horses to a child listening to themselves and saying, I really want to learn how to do this. But what I'm helping them do is learn how to listen to what they want and how to have a goal and how to meet that goal. So that what they do at RoboFund shouldn't just stay at RoboFund, should apply to all different areas of their learning. Very interesting. And I know from my side, I don't want to compare it to something that may be inaccurate. So apologies if I'm slightly off on the terminology, but is it 
you know, somewhat of um, like the core of what people like to refer to as more of like experiential learning, like where yeah, you're always sure. being hands on and sure. you know, having sure. in an environment in which yep. you're applying the knowledge while right. you're learning it, not right. just trying to digest. So there's a couple of words that th get thrown around in there, um, which would be project-based learning, uh, differentiated learning, meaning that you're not teaching the same thing to every kid. And if you think about it in a classroom, not we don't all get the same thing out of the same lesson. Um, you know, if you you do, you know, if you watch a movie with your family and and you know you all talk about it afterwards, one person may talk about a, a you know a scene you totally forgot about, you didn't even get, and it's the same way in school. Uh, so differentiation means that you are actively uh, creating lessons or projects that are different or the, really that the kids are creating for themselves. So project-based, um, student-led, experiential all fall in the sort of more progressive education models that are more student-centered than teacher-centered. Very interesting. Is the, the part that makes it student centered more of the fact that it is incorporating that physical element, you know, whether it's a robotics project or art, or is it more just how it's encompassing the delivery of the information? It's how it's encompassing the delivery. It, it's saying that the student needs to play a role in what they're learning and how they're learning it. Um, that's, that's the way to look at it in a student centered way. Very cool. So, of course, that kind of is a little bit different than our, you know, standardized curriculum right. and, and lesson framework that that we follow. Right. I think since like the early 1980s or 90s, I'm not going to be quoted on when we started that, but I know it was back then. Um, so how do you see, obviously, with your work in constructivism um, and more of the standard size of schools, how have schools been you know, accepting or digesting your approach to education? And do you feel a lot of schools understand that change is coming and they're trying to lean into it? Or do you feel like they're trying to find a balance between the two? Um, I think schools are in a really rough place in many ways. Uh, the model that we have for schools are is 120 years old. There's a great book, which I'll remember by the end of this conversation, but it's basically um, the factory model of learning. So uh, that's how it was developed. Um, so there's two things that I think are really missing, that when you have a factory model where everyone's supposed to be learning the same thing at the same time, you lose a ton of kids to begin with. Um, along, there was another point that I had, which I will remember in a minute, but I can't remember right now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, the, the factory model, is just not what works today. Um, and I, I suspected, oh, I know my other point was, I got there, was there's this hidden little thing that maybe now after the pandemic, after kids have been at home, which is a ton of school is about childcare. And no one really comes out and says that. Um, so they, I, I feel as though we're, we're bound in this system that there's all these things people don't say. But a lot of it is, oh my God, I gotta get my kid out of here for, for eight hours and I gotta you know, be able to function in life. Um, but if schools were able to change, I think one way they could change is that there'd be a lot more arts, a lot more creativity, a lot more computing and that type of thing. And that those would be more vehicles to the, the kind of R's, the reading, the writing. Um, 
but I think that I didn't really answer your question is do schools are schools um, accepting of all of these new things? I think that some are really trying. Um, I think we put a tremendous amount on a system that is not working well. And um, I don't know how you make a change from the top down on something like this, because I think number one, there's too many kids in a class. It's too structured. Um, it's not interest driven. It's too standards driven. Um, those are really, really hard problems to solve in, in a school system. Correct. No, I think it's a great point. That's why I was interested to see your take on it. Cause you know, what I've seen a lot of is, you know, there's always kind of this balance between public and private, right? And right. Um, I don't right. know if it's a good opinion, but in my mind, you know, private is usually in, not in charge, but usually um, the side of the coin that will drive the innovation or try to drive change, right? Privatized companies, of course, because yes, they have the I mean, flexibility to do so. Yeah, yes and no. And, and, and you right. asked me earlier about my homeschooled son. Um, so, you know, I, I had my child, ironically, the year I started the company, talk about naivete, uh, but <laughs> it all worked out. Um, and, you know, he's very bright, very capable, but very dyslexic, very ADHD. And, I, you know, I, I knew how to toe the line in school. I knew that you do stuff you don't want to do. I had a kid who, who that idea never crossed his mind. He, it never crossed his mind that you kind of grovel sometimes that that you treat adults a little differently than children and it wasn't that he was irreverent or uh inappropriate or rude it just was like his makeup and school were, were very very difficult so um at a certain point the whole thing started to fall apart and i pulled him out because i didn't feel like i had any other options um he, I tried the special schools for, for kids with special needs, and he always scored like he's a very asynchronous learner. So his vocabulary in third grade and his understanding was at literally at a 10th grade level, but he hadn't yet, you know, reading had, was really hard and kind of got together by second or third grade. So what do you do with a kid like this? Uh, school was absolute torture, and it really started to, to destroy him. So... Um, homeschooling was not something I was like, gee, let's, let's run a company, be a single mom and homeschool. This sounds like fun, <laughs> but it was more like, how do you, how do you save your child? And that's of course, for the, you know, the most important thing. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to learn about homeschooling. And it really, um, you know, my mentor, Seymour Papert's, one of his grandchildren was homeschooled. And he had mentioned this, but I hadn't really followed it. I, you know, when I started it, I thought it was something the really religious people did or people who were so far off the grid and, you know, in a different mindset than me. But what I discovered is it's very much like constructivism and constructionism that, you know, you, you can go deeper and you can do what is interesting to you. And through those things, you mature. Uh, so I call it your circles of strength. So my son was really interested in improv and playwriting. And um, so, you know, in, in high school, he wrote a lot of plays. He worked in Stephen Sondheim has a nonprofit or had one called Playwriting Inc., I think. Uh, he won a bunch of scholastic awards for his um, scripts. So 
there's just so many ways to go about learning. Um, and the traditional model is, is, is very hard on children. And I think it, it squashes a lot of their creativity. And do you think it squashes it more from, you know, how it's standardized to make sure it covers all the topics or it more squashes it again, coming back to like how it's delivered? Because all of us learn, you know, differently. Some are very good visual, audio, you know, experiential. So I'm just curious. Obviously, there's a lot involved in different students, but where do you think some of the downfalls are where they can't, you know, personalize to the students? Um, I think this concept and Ed Hirsch is research uh, about it really believed that by the end of kindergarten, a child should know X, Y, and Z. By the end of first grade, a child should know this. And I just think that that is a part of the problem, is that everyone is trying to check off boxes like our to-do list every day. And I don't think we learn that way. I think we learn when we have something, like think about when you have something really important to you. I mean, one thing I, I do when I talk to people is I go, okay, think about a really important learning moment in your childhood. Just think about it, any of them. And I'm going to ask you both the, those moments. One of those for me was a two-week canoe trip in high school uh, to, I believe it was called Algonquin State Park in Canada, where for two weeks we were in the middle of nowhere. And one night um, in a storm in my tent, I... Uh, the, it was like a really bad storm. It started raining, it rained in, and I had to share my sleeping bag with my tent mate because her entire sleeping bag got wet. And it was just like this really learning moment in that this is what you do. You gotta, you gotta be flexible. Um, so Brandon, what was one of the moments of real deep learning that you think of? I know I'm really being pushed. Oh my God, so listen, I've had, I've had many, I've had some just as of 15 minutes ago before I got on here <laughs> actually every single day. But, um, you know, I, I, my parents were split up. My dad was a pilot in the Air Force, so he was all over the place. Uh, we lived all over the place. And uh, when they split up, I, I was here with my mom. She was an executive recruiter. Um, at that point, in, for, for that short juncture, while she was doing this other entrepreneurial stuff, everything else like that. So she's driving to Newark every day. Um, they're coming back, working here, working there. You know, she's, she's trying to support um, two boys. Uh, my older brother and myself. But uh, so every summer I would live with my aunt and uncle down at the beach. And, um, you know, it's kind of like, it's the same thing in life now. When when you're in it, like, you don't realize how valuable the time is. You don't, like, if you're, if, if you're away on vacation, you're just thinking about getting the vacation when you're on the plane. When you're on vacation, you're just thinking about, going out to dinner when, and then after that you're, it, it gets to be two or three days until you go back home. You start thinking about going back home. You know, I very rarely like just digest everything in the moment. And one thing that I'm working on right now is really my aunt and uncle that I grew up with every summer um, just taught me just be in the moment. You know, my uncle um, was a um, construction person, right. For the union in Trenton, New Jersey. And most, most gentle guy you'd, you'd ever meet. The lessons he taught me are, are, are just like, be resilient. I, I heard you say, Laura, we, um, to learn how to rebound, you know. And um, he taught me how to be resilient. He taught me how to, um, you know, respect people, to be kind. Um, all these lessons. And, and just to go back, Laura, real quick on, on kind of the, the school piece. Um, 
I just think it's so important for parents, like even not even a parent as a mentor, as a, as a man or woman, if you see a child, um, struggling or, or any, any way that you can give back to them, you know, whether it's a time, a smile, a handshake, a fist bump, what, whatever. It's so important for kids because I didn't know where the heck I was going. Right. I was just walking in any direction, whichever way. But when people started giving me, give, give me a smile, man, it gave me a little bit of inkling of confidence and that's all people need. And, and it's the same thing in education. Like, a teacher, you know, I, I, I was just getting like pounded on by teachers sometimes, you know, like, oh, you, you misspelled it, you misspelled it, you missed the comma, you missed it, this. I'm like, listen, I'm graphic artist of the year here, you know, like I, I won that <laughs> award. I have the gold medal. M- Mr. Copac gave that to me. You can't take this away, you know. Right. And now I've written. I write all the time. I, right. I would challenge anybody up to to uh, write against me today. But that right. wasn't what I excelled against because uh, when I was younger, because I didn't have the confidence. Once I started to get the confidence, so I just end with this is kind of like um, on on a, on on a high note. Just you know, as an adult, empower. If you have kids, you know, do everything you can to to provide as many different experiences for them. Positive experiences, not negative. I know there there are a lot of negative experiences out there. And if you're a mentor or a man or woman that has time to give back in any way, um, do so. You know, it, it it makes a huge difference. It's actually one of my favorite parts of running the company is helping my staff grow, helping. Uh, we have a lot of high school interview in, interns. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I want to just circle back. The point I was going to make is that often those learning moments are not in a classroom from yeah. our childhood. And to me, that's both understandable because of many of the models that we learned in, but also a little tragic because, and for some people they are in the classroom. But if you think about all the time that kids are in school, what we could be doing for their learning, instead of, uh, school is often based on what the deficit model rather than on the strength model. So if you're really bad at reading, guess what? You're gonna get more reading classes. If you're really bad at spelling, but you're not, but maybe you're amazing graphic designer, you're not gonna get more of those. But what if you, had to write about graphic design if you were able to approach your deficits through your strengths. So that's sort of how I would like the direction of education to go. And I think many teachers and many principals would too. I know they would, but mm-hmm. there's a, there's so many constraints in, in public and private education uh, that make it very hard, ironically, for the teacher in the classroom to design things the way they want to design them. Yeah, definitely. So let's yeah, hear Brian's. I I I know. Oh, he's man, trying I was, to I'm trying to skate by that one. I know he's trying to skirt this the, the situation here, Laura. I see it in his eyes. So you can. Um, no, I think a powerful most of my, learning moment from your childhood. Yes. Yeah. Um, I would say for me, I I, I don't really like the the work ethic thing because I think you know a lot of people have hardworking parents and, and and mentors around them. For me, a lot of it was uh just paying it forward. So I would always, you know, my parents worked hard. Everybody's parents worked hard. When I was a firefighter in New York City, he ran his own contracting company. I'd go clean windows with him on the weekend. Um, and, and one time we were doing that, he just, he happened to have an elderly, you know, customer that had been a customer for him for like 10 to 15 years. Uh, it was down in like the Scarlsdale area. And we like, 
I did all the windows with my dad. I was like eight or 10 years old, somewhere in there. I thought it was cool just to be able to stand on the roof of a house. <laughs> um, and I remember when we left the four or five other houses before that, you know, you would collect an envelope when you leave for, for doing the work. They knew that you were going to be there. And on that house, you know, we just moved on and the people were home. So when I got in the car, you know, I asked, you know, is there a reason that I didn't get to collect an envelope? Because <laughs> uh, I thought that was the fun part. And, you know, he said, you know, this is a family friend of ours. And unfortunately, at that time, that person had fallen ill, you know, and then they weren't able to take care of their home. And between him, his brother and some other people, they were always going by and doing something on the house, no matter who was in, you know, whoever was around. And I think in that moment, especially when you're younger and you kind of go from getting to do the cool job and you're picking up you know, a check and whether it's a thousand dollars or $50 at eight years old, that's endless right. lollipops or yeah. cards or whatever you wanted to buy. Right. So right. it feels like rich of the hustle. And then to very shortly after, you know, experiencing those feelings to then completely switch it back the other way and realize, you know, that's not why we're doing this because right. people are helping us live and helping us do this for providing this. And, you know, you're always just paying it forward. And I think, you know, an experience like that is what really lets you realize, and I think education can relate to that the world is competitive in nature in the sense that there's a lot of opportunity. Um, but if we all came together to help each other capitalize on our own opportunities, whether it's through creating an introduction to somebody or like they're not good at writing, so you help them with copywriting to get their site up. It's all these small things. And when you pay it forward, you know, I truly believe it, it, it does come back. So. I think that's like one of the things that stick with me the most from my childhood of realizing it's not all about the hustle or the money, you know, it's, it's the relationships, the experience, uh, and the trust that you can build with others along the way. Hey, Brian. So it's so funny you mentioned relationships. I'm sitting here. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to call out Brian here real quick. <laughs> Laura, if you don't know, and anybody that's going to watch this on YouTube, if, if you're listening, it's going to be a little bit more difficult, but I, one of the things I, I, I know that Brian learned as a child is that, relationships good relationships last forever brian's partner in business amit i saw a picture of those two standing <laughs> as boy scouts how what 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 age were you seven Brian, in that picture? yeah i think we i think we're like 10 in, in the picture yeah it's, in it's boy a scouts. funny picture i mean that, that and, and it's funny you mentioned relationships because good relationships do last and good relationships create successful fulfillment i mean when i talk about it you can be fulfilled in business you can go make five million dollars and feel like a piece of junk you can you yeah. can you can go and make a hundred dollars and feel so fulfilled that you sleep like a champion at night you know and that that's that's so important to um to actually understand and realize for people you know we all chase this carrot and in in reality most of the time there is no carrot there's never a carrot it's just just enjoy as you go be the best that you can be so i know we're getting sidetracked in the weeds here with uh with all uh you know, all types of motivation inspiration here. So get us back on track, right? <laughs> right before it. you get it's us no back worries. on track, I'm going to just say one thing that yeah. will get us back on track. I met with a <laughs> gentleman named Michael Ridgeway today who emphasized as um, I would put him in the category of helping small business owners. And he said, yeah, but the difference between me and like private investment people are, I really put people before profits. And I believe that's what, uh, I have tried to do in my business is, you know, this is my last, probably not diversion, but when I started teaching, um, my brother was an investment banker and he, 
at one point I said, yeah, well, we have a, you know, a professional development retreat. And he goes, oh, well, we have one too. And I go, oh, well, where's yours? He goes, it's in the, in, in the Bahamas. And I said, oh, ours is in the cafeteria. And it was then that I realized teacher, we need to figure out ways to treat teachers better. And this whole model of schools doesn't serve the children or the teachers as well as it could. So now take it away, Brian. Sorry to. Yeah, no, you got it. That was the the perfect segue because I think is you know now is a good time. We can we were talking about the alternatives of learning. Um, I realized with my question to you, or it sounded like a public versus private schools. Um, I kind of meant a little bit more on the private side, being uh, like alternative education solutions and and private companies uh, sure. rather than schools. So yeah, yeah, okay. This, Leading into that one, I know, you know, there's some sites that everyone's aware of, obviously YouTube as generic and broad and be careful on the information, but you can find a lot of great tutorials, right? Right. Um, You can find out how to set up Restream. (laughs) You can find out how to set up HubSpot, how to code, right? Build a WordPress website. And then you have more of the formal sites like Udemy, um, which is more of, you know, an elastic, holistic educational site that started out around coding, as you probably know, and, and now has moved into graphic design, sales, et cetera. And, you know, this is kind of where I was posing the question where, you know, what do you think parents can do in the, in the interim or what can students do, right? A lot of it is helping them find that hobby or passion where you can relate, you know, all those learnings in there. And that's where I was kind of thinking, I think the private side, uh, not of education, but of all these alternative learnings that are coming from private companies, as they continue to grow, it's kind of giving, you know, parents or students the opportunity to bridge the gap of where they're not getting their education or really focus in on what their passion is and take every coding class by 13. Right. And right. it's it's not made up. There's engineers at Tesla now that are 15 years old and never even went to high school. Right. And I think it's some of those things changing in the private world of ours. Right. That can kind of lead that charge and provide a bridge in the meantime, because I do agree, you know, public, they have to still cater for everybody. Right? Private, it's a little bit easier because they can say we're just here to help engineers, you know, that want to code young. Um, but I'm just curious what you think about those solutions, you know, especially more as we go to remote learning. And um, do you think that can be a bridge, you know, or an alternative totally. for people that are trying totally. to figure it out? Um, I, I think that one of the, the difficult misconceptions um, that I think we all intuitively know is wrong, but we still try is the sort of one size fits all for education. All those kids go off into kindergarten and should be happy. Um, all those kids go into high school and find their niche. And I just don't think there's two ways to look at one size fits all. Uh, one is my constructivist model of teaching may not be the best model for teaching Spanish and you may need a different model. And uh, actually right now I'm a real advocate of Duolingo and it's not very constructivist, but it's it's very creative and a very interesting approach to teaching. So I think that not only one approach doesn't work for all different types of learning, but one approach doesn't work for every child. Um, and so that our job as parents, as educators, is to to try to find other approaches that can work. Um, I'm giving a talk tomorrow um, on, if you go to our Facebook page, RoboFund New York City, with a guy named Dr. Gary Steger. And he was talking about the sort of learning re- recovery issue um, and how a bunch of kids came into the class and the teacher's like, well, what do you think you learned this year? Can you write this? 
and a bunch of them got out their iPads and started talking into the iPad. <laughs> and the teacher like, no, 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 you have to write it. And in a way, what they were doing was really brilliant. And uh, so you have to think about, and this is something from my mentor, Seymour Papert, literacy versus letteracy. Now, on the other hand, you want them to be able to write, but maybe if you want to hear what they did over this 18 months, maybe it would be better to get them to start with a paragraph that they uh, dictated. So, so that answers in a very broad way, specifically things like um, the uh, colleges are in an incredibly difficult situation, I think. Hmm. And it's all going to change and it's probably going to change there and then maybe trickle down. That's one idea. But places like Harvard and lots and lots of other places have things like the Harvard Extension School, which is like the site you mentioned, Udemy. You know, like you can, you can literally get a undergraduate, and I believe a graduate degree from Harvard through the Extension School. Columbia has a, I care, the School of General Studies, I believe it's called, a different admissions process and different course requirements and a different way to go about it. Um, now the Extension School used to be in person, but now a lot of it is online after the pandemic. Um, and I know kids who have done that at 15. And so I think the whole paradigm of what you need is different. Um, I mean, I think we all know those kids who you know are late bloomers and you know you just have to watch until they you know, they find their way in graduate school and, you know, that becomes the next Steven Spielberg or something like that. Um, so I think we are so ripe for these options. Um, and I think that one of the keys from my point of view as a, a parent of a child who was homeschooled from 11 on was trusting them. And that was really hard. Um, and I had some great homeschool gurus who said they know what they want. They, they want to succeed and your job and we can help you is to find avenues for them to succeed. So at the time that I homeschooled, which was now starting 12 years ago, there wasn't all this online options. But uh, for those people, I just want to throw out a couple of things uh, that are available for those looking for more ways for your child to learn. There's something called Splash which um, is available at colleges uh, around the country. Um, I took advantage of it at MIT where it began. And Splash is a weekend program where college kids teach high school kids. And uh, it's probably way too late for this year because it is so popular. It's, it, and I don't know if they're even running it in person, but it transformed my son's learning in four weekends uh, every year of high school. Um, so there's so many different ways to learn um, through internships, through apprenticeships, through online learning. But I think the key to all of it is people who care about your child in whatever form it is. And the second is people who, who can get your kid and get what, what is holding them back? What are some ways to move them forward? Um, and it doesn't really matter what the label is. You know, as I, before I pulled my son out of school, I got all sorts of labels, uh, you know, from neuropsychs that he was ADHD, he was dyslexic, he had comorbid things. 
And I could see all of that. But what was the real truth was if he was in a small class with a teacher that liked him and wanted to work with him, that teacher, he would have followed that teacher, you know, across the world. So those are the things that I think make good educational experiences. Definitely. No, and I think that kind of just relates to the, the private side a little bit of these newer alternatives that are coming. It's yep. it's giving people that are younger. Uh, I just, uh, you know, I, I felt very close to the example you gave with college because I went into college to be a PA, a physician's assistant. Yep. Uh, and that was purely based on the principles that doctors make good money. PAs can run their own business. They don't have to be a doctor. You can open up your own practice, have a pharmacy in it. And that was all learned from an experience where I worked at a pharmacy for four years. So it's all, you know, your brain starts to think of what it's absorbed or what it's seen. So I kind of view these alternatives that are coming out as an earlier gateway for younger kids to find their passion and find the way that they learn. And, and hopefully that's what brings things forward. So I think that will probably cover the alternative side. So Laura, I'd love to you know transition. Obviously, you know, RoboFund is a much different size today, uh, working with a lot sure. more schools than it was in, in your sure. first couple of years, uh, of course. So just wanted to cover the journey of, you know, RoboFund in, in particular and, you know, when it came to the early stages of your journey, once you knew this is what you wanted to do, you know, what were some of the challenges of trying to get your first after school program in or, you know, work with the schools and really deliver essentially your vision for the first time? So to begin with, we started with grants um, and we started with like what a grant that we're in round eight of now, the 21st Century Community Learning Center grant. So we started working in schools and then I went I moved my office from one location to, and I took over someone's lease. And they said, you can take over the lease only on one condition. I want you to teach my kids here because they're not getting anything like this in their school. And that was sort of the beginning of the RoboFund studio. And I was like, okay, we can, we can do that too. And so we, you know, when you begin a company uh, and at lots of stages of the company, you are, completely improvising. So we had this one big office and I was like, well, that's where we all sit and organize the programs that run in the schools because so RoboFun runs at 102nd Street, but it also runs in about 150 schools in New York City at a time where we're running after school programs or in the day programs. So all day long, my people are organizing, hiring people to go into the schools. And then four o'clock comes along and we're teaching a class of kids in half of that space. So you get creative and we bought a big, huge curtain and the curtain went across and the other half was the kids learning and the parents waiting in the hall for them. Um, so it starts slowly and it starts piece by piece. Initially, when I started, I was a part-time um, administrator at Little Red. And then, you know, you get one contract and you get another contract. Uh, it's kind of like hopping across a pond on the lily pads in a, in a, in a video game. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what, a few of the things that were really important and that also relate to tech for me were you can't be good at everything. And I have areas that I'm, I believe that I have an under, a, a good understanding of ed tech, a good understanding of schools, a good understanding of motivating my staff. Um, but there are other areas that I'm not good at. And uh, I have learned that putting the pressure on yourself that you should be good at everything is not the way to go. 
Uh, so at the beginning, I hired some really good consultants to help me learn how do I recruit and how do I hire? How do I hire good teachers? How do I train good teachers to be good? Um, and that's always really important to me. We have a really uh, standardized hiring process that's about to go uh, digital that we're very excited about. Um, and I would say that I don't have an MBA and I do great back of the nap napkin finance, but when you get to a certain point, that is not enough. And I got really good advice and good financial support for my organization. Um, so I think accepting you can't be good at everything, you have to pick really good advisors and you have to understand that the advisors that work for today may not work for tomorrow. Uh, there's that phrase, what got you here won't get you there. And I've, I've realized that at times uh, my personal loyalty and my like of a person, uh, they may not be the right person to get you to the next stage. Um, I remember a big step for me was I had it like an outs outsourcing all of our billing. Uh, but we got so big, we needed a full-time person doing that or so big for us. Um, and so it's really being aware of what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, what can you um, take off so that you can, what can you automate so that you can do the important stuff and not have to worry about the things that you want to just happen automatically. Definitely, and I think that's the hardest part for a lot of us. You know, it's, did you start too soon or did you start too late? Is there a way to get the right person in the right seat, but have you grown and now that seat has changed? Right. And right. Right. Uh, especially like you said, you know, at the end of the day, people in our companies, you know, we look at as teammates and family members alike. So it gets difficult if what was working for four to five years is now not going to work for the next four to five because we want to triple the size, you know, and you right. just need different people in different seats. And it, it can be a big challenge. And I know, you know, you kind of mentioned there, of course, today, the company's a lot larger. Um, how many uh, employees and, and schools are you working in today? I know that it's around like 300 schools, right? Um, so it, it varies depending on the time of the year, uh, but we have uh, eight full-time employees at RoboFund who are amazing. I mean, I have an amazing team. I didn't lose anyone in the pandemic. Uh, they stuck with me um, and they worked their butts off and people's jobs changed because, you know, our whole world changed. Um, <laughs> And before the pandemic, we had 65 part-time teachers. We call them mentors, which is part of our philosophy. They're guiding, they're supporting. Um, and that went way down because for a while, no one was running programs or very few schools were running programs. We're now back to about 30 to 35 part-time mentors or part-time teachers. Um, and at a given moment, we are running about 120 programs in schools right now. So uh, five afternoons a week. Um, it may not, we're, okay, we're not there. It's, so we're at the end of the food chain of how schools start in their year. So that they're not really starting, I mean, private schools are starting their after schools. They've started. But public schools, there's a lot of steps to starting the program. So some of them are started, but by early November, we'll be running lots and lots of programs. So our HR person, Kelly, is really working very hard to place people with all of our managers. So That's amazing. And I think 
obviously it'll kind of lead us into, you know, as the company grows, right, there's different roles that can come in from, like you said, the advisement of how to hire the right people, get them in the right seat. And then of course, the different tools and aspects, you know, that you would utilize to, to scale that team or support them with the tools they need to do their job effectively. Right. Right. Um, so one question is the leading question that we'd like to ask because everybody describes it different, right? And a lot of people see digital transformation as an event or, you know, really at the end of the day, it's just how can you apply technology as a vehicle yep. for your business, uh, yep. not as the end all be all solution. So yep. um, I just wanted to ask you, Laura, right, for yourself and for RoboFund, you know, what does technology or, or digital transformation mean specifically to you and your company? Sure. Um, I just want to tell one little anecdote before I get into that, which is it used to be that my little Toyota Prius delivered equipment across the city. And we, I had a commercial policy, uh, insurance policy, and we'd call it like the Robo Fund Mobile or the Vision Mobile. And three, four times a year, it's like, okay, Laura, we got to take the car. And one really great manager is like, Laura, this is a really stupid use of my time. I could be selling more. And when you deliver equipment to school, it's not so easy because there's lots of no parking and you often have to have a second body in the car with you. And we have boxes and boxes. It's like uh, four feet tall of boxes of Lego often. So she researched and she found that there's a couriers, you know, that we could use couriers. And, you know, those are the kind of steps that you go through. Um, so that brings me to how we use technology. So we used to have a, um, a, a, a wiki, um, a, well, first we had a Google doc that had, or a Google set of sheets that have every single school we were in, the start date, the end date, the mentor who was working at it, our contact person, where the equipment was stored. Um, and it was a nightmare to use. And we were like, what do we do? What do we do? We tried one system. We put some money in and it didn't work out. I've always been very uncomfortable building my own system because I feel like you're then dependent on the person who builds it unless you use some out off the shelf software that somebody else could take over. So we put, um, we invested in, a, in, in an Airtable database spreadsheet type of thing. And it has really helped our transformation so that Everyone has their own view of it. We use it for both inventory, for cash flow planning, for what grant are we in? Are we going to be able to provide the service that that grant asks for? Uh, so my view of using technology in a company is that it's a little bit like if you're home and you're going to try a new thing at home, you don't try to change everything. You know, maybe you're going to get a new babysitter. Maybe getting a new babysitter at the time that grandma's visiting and at the time that another child's having a birthday isn't such a good idea, but maybe just try the new babysitter. Um, so I feel the same way with technology. Um, I'm always like, let's have an A plan, a very small amount of uh, our whole company involved in the A plan. If it works, then we can involve more uh, aspects of it. Very good. No, yeah. So, I mean, I, and that's really the best way to go about it. You know, I think 
Uh, that's a really important part to touch on because a lot of people think it's binary, uh, you know, out with the old in with the new. And now you have to change the entire organization from right. sales to back office to the warehouse, et cetera. Um, and it's really just starting small. You know, and I think that's it's such a good testament to I love your example, you know, with the, with the car and the courier service. I always remember uh, Bezos example, which I think he says, Jeff Bezos, where he was packing books into boxes on his knees in his basement. And he turned to his worker and said, we need knee pads. And his worker turned back to him and said, no, Jeff, we need tables. And he was like, you're right. You know, it's, right. when you're always so close to something, you don't really see, you yeah. know, what, what the next opportunities are. So, And also um, as a founder, it's, you know, I, I, I don't want my company to suffer from sort of founder syndrome that I'm holding on to it this way. Um, you know, everyone who works with me is now or all but one is is significantly younger than me. And, um, you know, even just tech skills, tech skills in your late 50s, early 60s in acquiring them is really different than for you guys. Um, and uh, I will call my office and say, I'm in the middle of Google Docs or I'm in and trying to do a sort. What am I? They're like, I don't know, just Google it. And, you know, every you have to be ready to embrace change and that's not always easy so no it's definitely not and i think you know the thing that always comes back to it especially for us like technology is just a vehicle the same way as finding a courier is a better vehicle yes, you know exactly. pun intended pun not intended yeah, um right. <laughs> to deliver the goods but it's always right. just finding like what's that next step and pushing right. yourself to ask right. those questions um so i'm curious like you said founders ourselves all on the call you know how do you kind of lead by example or give somebody the reins for them sure. to lead by example if you feel like that's outside of your bucket so um, well, I'll give you the example of, I'll give you two examples. One is um, our use of a system for um, registering our students. Um, we had a system that had a fantastic back end. I'm not going to use any names. Um, the back end, we could get any piece of data out of it we wanted. But the front end was very difficult for parents when they would register their child and want to pay online. So I put together a list of what we wanted and um, the people who ran RoboFund, this is for the RoboFund program. We, we looked at our, you know, we tried to find out what's out there and we found something that the front end is beautiful and it works for now. Um, but we're also aware that the technology changes and the needs change so quickly that it's good for now, but unless this company keeps it going, it's not going to be necessarily our tool in two years. Um, but I would say like the process actually, uh, so Brandon um, works for us as a consultant and handles our um, two different things, our marketing and also like tech things, especially for me, I do a weekly <laughs> Facebook Live. And our process with that is what do we need? We made a list of what do we need, you know, what can we afford and let's bring in a few people um, and really work with my leadership team. And I have an amazing leadership team. So I think the key for me that I've also learned is I can be like, yes, that's a great idea. Let's go with that. And other people on my team will be like, have you thought about this? Oh, no, I forgot about that. Totally. Have you thought about it? So, so like having a group think is really important with these things. Um, 
And also, who's going to use the tool the most? So I'm not going to use the registration tool as much as somebody else on my staff for registering parents. Um, so the person who's going to use the tool the most has to be really involved in that selection. And, you know, like I mentioned, John Tesporis, the past employee who said he worked every Sunday so his mom could have a day off. You have to have somebody who has a really good entrepreneurial take on it. Like, is this going to help us grow? Is this going to make my life harder or easier? Um, how is the interface for parents? So you, you kind of are, you have to think about it from all different points of view and often from the end point. Like my, my job is to get parents to register for our classes in RoboFund. Is this tool going to make it faster, easier, and is it going to stay in touch with them? No. And another, another example is that Brandon um, encouraged us very gently and gradually we all agreed with him to change our website so that it's completely driven like Zappos is the way I think of it. How old is your kid? Do you want vacation day? Do you want after school? Do you, you know, what do you want a birthday party? And then it drives you to, to those choices, sort of like a flow chart. Um, and for me, what I thought about is, I know what it's like to be a busy mom. And I know that if I can't solve this in five to 10 minutes and it isn't easy, I'm not gonna do it. Um, Another example of this is I, I have a dog and uh, I reluctantly have a dog walking service for the days that I just cannot get to it. And I think that their app is unbelievable because in two minutes, I've just lost $20 or you know, depending on how many walks, 200. And I'm like, that, I'm, that person really figured that one out to pull the money out of me, but it, I need it and it's great. So it's all about- no the right tools. And I think going slowly to adapt them to make sure they work for you. No, it is. I think, you know, what people don't realize, and you said it very well, you always have to go to the end point, you know, so we laugh a lot of, you know, our work where you're always talking with the management people who are saying sales could be more efficient. We need to fix this is what the sales team are saying to us. And then when we work our way down to the line and get to talk to that business user, they'll say, yes, that is the problem but it's actually being caused by these five things, not the three that you have, right? And it's, right. it is important to recognize that yes, you know, as the, the leader of the company, you, you need to have a sign off somewhere, but it's more important that you can, you know, empower what we like to call cheerleaders of your organization that will take the accountability for their role in that project and bring all the knowledge that you don't have because you're not doing their job on a day-to-day -day basis. Yes. Um, and Brandon is extremely good with building those workflows and user experiences. We've worked with them on a few things. Um, and Brandon, you know, kind of switching it to the client side, because I know we've kept you quiet over there for a little bit. Um, <laughs> A lot of our challenge is, you know, educating customers on, you know, here's where you could be doing something better, right? This is where we can improve this. But at the end of the day, it's always going to come down to, you know, the, the comparison of like, how long is this going to take and what's the impact that it's going to have to the business, right? So of course, with Laura and RoboFund, it, it's pretty easy to show it on, on, not easy, but on the registration form, it's easy to compare and contrast because it's more visual. But, you know, for others that are listening, that may be an employee in their company that thinks they have a great idea, but don't know how to bring it to management or they're a consulting company that knows they have great ideas for their clients, but they're scared to pitch them and fear that the client thinks they're trying to just sell them more stuff. Right. Um, how do you go about that process? And, you know, what do you think is the best way for people to communicate suggestions, whether it's to their internal, you know, their higher ups or their, their own clients? 
Yeah, well, you know, it's not always going to go your way. If you, if you, because there, there, it depends on what size company you're actually at. So if you're at a, a Fortune 500 company and you're trying to bring an idea, it's probably, it, it, you may get some uh, rebuttal or whatever else like that. If you're at a smaller <laughs> company and, um, and they're not receptive to, to what you're saying or you just feel like they're blowing you off and you feel like you have a good idea, you may just have a good idea. You may want to kind of freelance out and, and dip your toe into a little bit of the entrepreneur world and I'll uh, build it. There are a lot of, there are a lot of, um, great services that started from a specific need that have grown very rapidly. And, uh, I always say the time to prepare is before you need it. And anybody in technology, if you, if you, if you sit back and you, and you just get comfortable, it's, it's the wrong spot. You know, you always have to be moving forward. It's, it's just like a relationship with my wife. Like if I get static and just sit and, 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 and get lazy and sit down and think that the world's not going to change, it's going to change, you know, and it's, and it's, and it's going to change in my personal relationship. It's going to, it may change two, two times as fast in my personal relationship, but in the technology relationship, it will change a hundred times faster because the companies today that are able to onboard people, a totally fluid, crystal clear, dead, simple onboarding process, and then um, get them on board and then communicate with them clearly are going to smoke any company that's been around for a hundred years, that's sitting back, that's using ancient technology, that's not, you know, starting to gather mobile numbers for text. Um, uh, like I, I almost don't even communicate. Um, I, I would say like 80% of, or I'd say 70% of my communication is through text today, you know, or instant chat or a chat bot or something else like that. Um, so just, just to answer your question directly, Brian, if so, if, if there's a, a guy or girl, doesn't matter what age you're never too young, you're never too old. Um, again, bring the idea up, float it by some people and just, just remember that we all have different backgrounds. So just because, oh my goodness, I talk about this all the time too. <laughs> it may be your mom that tells you you're crazy. Your biggest, your, your, your biggest advocate in your life tells you, Brandon, I work nine to five. I was successful. I raised this family. Go do the same, you know? And just because your grandfather did it, your grandmother did it, your, your great aunt did it, doesn't mean you need to do it. You know, just go with whatever, be creative, just like Laura was saying. You know, be 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 creative and be willing to take some risks. And I, I, again, I'll end with this: is that you know what Laura was saying in the beginning here with the classes is teaching the is giving the kids different experiences, right? So different experiences evoke different things in our head. It makes us think differently. It's giving them confidence, right? So you you have you have confidence to do things. And it's gaining resilience because when you're doing STEM, robotics, coding, game design, animation, any of these different things, um, you're going to you're going to fail, right? Because it's your first time you're plugging things in together. It's not easy. I've taken the class with my son, one 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 of the online classes when they just transferred over. It's not easy. You know, you're sitting there with a the 12 year old. You're trying to have him pay attention, and sometimes it's like the parents taking the class and and whatever. But um, just just if you're not getting the answers you want, keep fighting, 
you know, and, and if people are telling you no, you know, I would definitely digest it and understand that people may be telling you no, but it's based upon their experiences. And a lot of people live with the experience of failure and not resilience because they haven't had the opportunities um, that other people have had good, bad, indifferent, anything else like that. So you really have to pave your own road, you know, in life and in relationships and, you know, everything starts with, a, you know, there's personal and business. They all mend hand in hand. I know people have to separate them, everything else. I understand the books and this and that. But in, in the end, man, it's a, if you're running a successful business, if you have a startup, if you have a successful, um, if you're looking to in, integrate uh, a, uh, a new technology path, you're going to need relationships with the vendor. You're going to need trust. You're going to need uh, acceptance. You're going to need understanding. You're going to need all the things that make you successful, you're going to need. So I've gone on and on. I'll, I'll stop there. I'll stop while I'm ahead. <laughs> that was perfect, Brandon. No, I think, you know, like you said, one of the biggest things is we're all made up of our different experiences. So whether it's people that are giving you their feedback and your parents are telling you no, you know, they're not doing it from a sense of that they don't want you to try something. They're just trying to protect you from the same way that they were protected, you know, from their parents by knowing, listen, this is a safe track if you go this way. You know, you, I know you'll at least be in good shape up to this level, right? If I let you go the other way, I don't know if you're going to shoot 20 things past that or get upset and stay down. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you have any ideas, um, you know, any things that just excite you naturally, it's always good just to pursue them with zero expectations. You know, don't expect it to turn into a successful company. Don't expect your boss to say, this was the best idea I've ever heard, Brandon, right? Or, or that it was the worst idea. You know, just go in with no expectations and that you're just looking to get feedback. And at the end of the day, if that's still something, you know, that sits in your gut, then you should pursue that. And if it turns out to be a failure, maybe in what you defined it to be, you know, for success or failure, it was. But if you look back at it three years later, you'll probably look at it as a learning experience and something that, you know, resulted in something much better. Um, and I think, you know, it's a testament. Laura's been sharing her story today. I think you know, a lot of those entrepreneurial young stories, like, why do my parents make me do this? Why do I have to do that? And then 10 years later, as bad as that parent saying is, like, you'll always like me in the future, just wait till you're older. And then you get to like 25 and you're like, oh my God, they've been right, you know, <laughs> almost the entire way. <laughs> and you look back at it. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's just a really good conversation around just having the conviction and pursuing what you're going after. And I think, you know, Laura, I think that's a lot of what you're going to give, you know, and empower kids to have, because when they find that fun attrition of, I love building robotics or I love to code and, and they found that mechanism for consuming information, you know, then the, the boundaries are limitless because they don't really realize, you know, that they're learning. They're just chasing something that's fun. Right. Um, so I, I, I think one last thing I wanted to say about about learning and um, you know using technology as a tool, which is both true from the point of view of teaching in a classroom and in the point of view of uh, adding a new technology into my company, is that it is a ton of trial and error, and the word fail is like a real misnomer because especially if you're learning how to program or code. It never works the first time. You're, you know, it never works the second time. By the third or fourth time, you're learning each time, and each time you're getting better and better. But in our sort of traditional paradigm of how we describe this, the first time would be described as a failure, which is is such a um, a downer way to look at it. It's more like, okay, it didn't do what I thought, but what did it do, and why did it do that? And it's the same, 
you know, we've had various uh, marketing initiatives. Okay, it didn't do what we thought, but we got people this way. Now, why did that happen? So uh, the, the fail versus success is an unfortunate way to look at it. No, it certainly is. And, and I think that's kind of just, as I don't want to relate it strictly to schooling, but, you know, standardized testing is you, you pass or you fail, right? And um, SATs, you know, getting into college, taking college courses, Yep. Um, and even, you know, getting hired, like if you want to get promoted, did you get promoted that quarter or not? You fail, you know, in, in your own mind. And, and it is right. a perspective that I think I'm not sure where it stems from. I'm not going to blame it on education, but um, I think, you know, it's definitely something that's embedded in our culture that if you don't get it right the first time, it's not that you made it 90 percent and then failed. Right. Like you try to tie your shoes for the first time as a little kid and you got one side, then you tied it and it came apart. But you did everything right up to that. And, right. you know, I think a lot of the innovators that we're going to see you know, coming out into the educational space, the innovators that we're seeing everywhere else, you know, um, even Elon Musk, you know, he expected the first five spaceships he was trying to land on their own to all crash. But it was just a question of how much could they learn from that failure? So the next time they were learning 30 percent less. Uh, and I think if a lot more people took that mindset, they would find who they truly are a lot earlier um, and really find that passion and the rest will funnel behind. And I think, you know, that's really what RoboFun will do, you know, for a lot of people. And I'm just very happy to be able to have the opportunity to, to share your guys' uh, journey as well and, and make sure a lot more people are aware of it. Well, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. It's, yeah. it's fun to talk to you both. Yeah, let me throw a quick shameless plug in for Laura too. Thursdays, 12.30 p.m. Thursdays, 12.30 p.m. Eastern. If you are a human being, you will love what <laughs> she shares. If you're not, you'll still love it. So join Heart to Heart, H-A-R-T-T-O, Heart, H-E-A-R-T, 12.30 p.m. Uh, Facebook Live, YouTube Live, and she has great educators on there. And uh, she's always talking about this stuff. So make sure you, you uh, join her over there. Definitely. And we'll, we'll be sure to have everything uh, in the show notes as well, Laura. We'll have all of your, you know, your guest information, uh, the social information. So be sure to check it out. Uh, be sure to head over to our website, which will be launched tomorrow um, to subscribe and get all that information. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and are curious about your own learning and where the future of education is going to go. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. And we look forward to having you on again soon in the future. Sounds great. I would love to. Thank you awesome. so much. Have a great night, everybody. Yes. Have a great night.